we decided last week to go through chapter two of the seminar I did at the ARC conference. There was five chapters, but chapter two was kind of the meat of the seminar. And those are, chapter two is seven critical concepts of all Grace Christian Fellowship outreaches. In other words, these are biblical ideas that we must work together to, uh, you know, all biblical outreach is done by a community of Christians, not by just one individual. And we have to uh, integrate these ideas coterminously. In other words, they need to be inextricably intertwined if we're going to, uh, if we're going to have fruit and we're going to see God do what he wants to do. So we, ca- we covered last week, we covered point number one, uh, which is that fishing is following. Uh, that means we're supposed to be a community of disciples. Uh, what a church should be is a, a community of people dedicated to bringing their emotions, their mind, their thoughts, their finances, their loves, their, their hates, all under the Lordship of Christ together so that uh, we can show forth the image of God to a, to a lost world around us and begin to fish and, uh, for men and bring them into uh, the great kingdom experience that we've experienced through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, second concept that really is what we began to do last fall. Uh, as you know, a mistake I made in this church is we, um, I had never started a church. I had started three churches or so in about five, seven campus ministries, something like that, five or six and um, I had never started a church that was very oriented towards troubled people. And so um, I kept having this idea we should get everyone to a certain degree of stability and maturity uh, before we start doing outreach. Well, we just weren't getting there. And then I was reminded while reading a book of something I used to teach back in the 70s and 80s and had forgotten is that really Jesus sent people out when they weren't ready. Uh, the disciples in Luke 9, the 70 other disciples in Luke 10. And, you know, I kept uh, kind of uh, wrestling with how do we get everyone to be mature and so forth, but doing ministry is part of how you grow up. Because what happens is you, as you uh, start to do ministry, as you start to evangelize, as you start to disciple, you will get compassion for for uh, the people you're working with. And that will lead you to sanctification. Jesus said, for their sakes, I sanctify myself when he's praying in John 17 about his disciples. It's because of these guys that I set myself apart to the Father. And when you really care about how your life is impacting the people around you that you're re- that you're sharing the gospel with and so forth when you want to be a p- pure conduit when you want to be a pure vessel when you want to have the anointing not be mixed with other anointings when you want the word of god that comes to be clear and accurate and humble and merciful and life-giving you will you will actually grow in the lord while you start fishing so we discussed that last week, and then we got, uh, we got as far as point three, about halfway through. We mentioned rethinking the sinner's prayer. I wish I could do that again. It's uh, something you, if you haven't heard last week's on the podcast, please uh, listen to it and at least listen to that part about 
really what people mean today when they're saying the sinner's prayer versus what they ought to mean. And, uh, and you know, the church is responsible for that. So we also talked about how we've, we've been rethinking the gospel for about 10 years. I mean, I've been looking for a really good book on the gospel for about 10 years. I have not found one yet. Uh, Scott McKnight's book back there on the table uh, called The King Jesus Gospel gets back to a few of the issues that need to be gotten back to. Um, and there's ones like uh, today's gospel, authentic or synthetic, Walter Chantry. He gets back to some of the things about the law, using the law of God for conviction and, and repentance and lordship of Christ. But really, you know, I don't know anywhere where uh, people are putting all of the elements I have listed here. I have seven elements listed here, and, and you just don't get that anywhere. I can't find it anyway. Um, most people who know that we've lost, the, you know, that we have now the American sugar-coated gospel, sweetened just the way you like it, fortified with nine essential blessings and tailored for the me generation, most people who get that uh, center in on, well, the lordship of Christ needs to be included. And sure it does. In fact, the very fact that it's a debate at all is grievous because what he's saving you from from Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible speaks of he's saving you from being your own Lord. <laughs> that, that is the essence of hell, evil, destruction, being in control, being calling the shots, being your own master, not being a lover and submitter to God is what he's saving you from. And because uh, the fruit of that of loving yourself and being your own Lord and determining for yourself what's good for evil is horrendous. It's a life completely out of control. So uh, I wish we uh, had more time to do that, but uh, we did mention also the point three there, the history of Israel. That's the one that's most missing. Uh, McKnight touches on it and gets about halfway there. Um, but the, the, the whole point is that if you read all eight presentations of the gospel in the book of Acts, starting with Acts chapter 2 and Stephen's presentation in Acts 7 and Philip in Acts 8 and so forth, of course, the most, most famous one is Peter in Acts 10 at Cornelius' house, every one of them quotes verse after verse after verse out of what Christians usually call the Old Testament. And again, they should be called the Hebrew Scriptures, but because um, what we call the Old Covenant didn't even come about till Exodus chapters 19 and 20. But um, those scriptures um, were quoted because the whole scripture is about Jesus, and he, it, it's all building up to him. Hundreds of figures in the Old Testament are foreshadowers of Christ, and hundreds of the historical things that happen are prefigures of Christ and so forth. And God's intention was always to restore the dominion mandate of Genesis 1. When Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, "'Go ye therefore into all nations and make disciples of all nations,' teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He's saying 
go disciple in the exact same way I discipled you. Study how I discipled the disciples and go do that. One of the most interesting things to me at all is almost no churches do one-on-one discipleship by people qualified to do it. And wherever you find it, you usually find it in uh, parachurch structures. In other words, campus ministries and high school ministries and ministries like that. Um, the, The Miami Valley Women's Center does more discipling than most churches with with their men's classes and women's classes and so forth. Weekly meetings with a Christian, Bible studies. So, um, you know, we, we kind of touched on that. And um, when Jesus in Matthew 16 says, I will build my ecclesia, it's because Moses' uh, people are called his ec- Moses' ecclesia, in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which Jesus and the apostles quote from regularly as being authoritatively the word of God. They quote about half of the time from the Masoretic Hebrew text and about half of the time from the Greek Septuagint. So they're, what they're saying is we consider both of those to be authoritative. They considered the Septuagint to be a good translation. And so uh, Jesus constantly quotes from the Old Testament in all his teachings. He is the final priest, the final prophet, the final king. He unites all the, uh, he's the first person that unites all the offices that God wanted in the nation of Israel in one person so that his followers would be kings, priests, princes, uh, intercessors, judges, etc., prophets. In Christ, we are all to be those things. Now, point 3C was gospel-based discipleship. We'll talk about that later, hopefully today. So let's get to point 3D, three ingredients of biblical discipleship. Now, uh, almost all discipleship in our day and age is just informational. Informational discipleship is very important. I do Bible studies. Uh, I have uh, skipping the week of the ARC in the last three weeks, this past week and then three weeks ago, I did an average of 10 Bible studies with new Christians. And uh, I'm all for informational Bible studies. I crank out hundreds of them. And, uh, you know, I've been working on that part of, of things for 20-some years. So I'm all for that. But the way Moses and Joshua were you know, the way discipleship worked with Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Elisha and Gehazi, uh, the way it worked with Jesus and the 12, the way it worked with Paul, Timothy, Titus, Silvanus, Luke at one point, Mark, John Mark switched from being discipled by Peter to Paul, and then back to Peter again. Um, the way it worked is there was two other types of discipleship that are very important, impartational and formational. Now, in 2 Timothy 3.10, it says, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, love, perseverance. When you've discipled someone to where they're motivated for the same vision you have, you've, you've been their spiritual father. How many, you know, times does... Uh, 
does a son grow up to have all kinds of characteristics of his father? Tim, Paul calls Timothy his true child in the faith or his true son in the faith. So impartational is the idea of imparting your, the mantle of your authority, uh, your passion for God, uh, uh, anointing of the Holy Spirit, and so forth. And you get that by hearing the word of God. So as you hang out and as you do stuff together, as you do ministry together or whatever, uh, whoever is, is discipling you imparts who they are, including their conduct. That's pretty intense if you think about it. Can you say to people that you're discipling, I'd, I'd really like your conduct to be like mine in every way? <laughs> That's pretty intense, right? I'd like your purpose, that is your motivations, to be my, like mine. You know, to an immature church, Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, be imitators, or to the most mature church, I'm sorry, in Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, be imitators of God and walk in love, right? But to a very immature church in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's pretty interesting, right? Paul, Paul tells the Corinthians to imitate Paul, as he imitates Christ. And that's really what discipleship is. In 1 Corinthians 15, it lays down a principle, first the natural, then the spiritual. You'll be, you'll be uh, like a kid growing up is first his father's disciple before he's God's disciple. In the Lord, you're first disciple of, of whoever's in, investing in you and the community that's investing in you. Yeah, one individual disciples you, but a community of people disciple you. Discipleship is never healthy if it's just one person that's doing all the discipling. You want to have a whole community of people discipling you. And then that has to become formational because character, character is the issue. When I work with people who are in trouble uh, vocationally, in trouble in their marriage, in trouble in their finances, uh, in trouble in all sorts of things, it always gets down to character. It always gets down to the fruit of the Spirit versus the deeds of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. If you, you have to have Christ-like character that is anointed and led by and empowered by the Spirit of God, by the gospel. If uh, you don't have that, your whole life will be a train wreck. Your character is your destiny. You know, being able, if, you know, almost everyone in life gets into a certain battle at a certain time in their life where they realize, oh my gosh, I really got in bondage over here to, to an anger management issue or to a lust issue or to a drug issue or just frankly, I've gone my whole life being too passive and apathetic and too lazy. And when, you know, once your God opens your eyes to that, the race is on. You know, you, if you stay there, your life will be a train wreck if you begin to cry out to God and do the studies and get the counsel and change change practical things. You, then you you'll step right into being looking like Jesus, being called by Jesus, becoming fruitful with Jesus. So discipleship, uh, I, you know, I I go so far with this decision making model versus a discipleship model that I very rarely. Uh, pray 
the sinner's prayer with someone, except for I, and when I, I really kind of pray it many times over, over, you know, I, I, when normally when I'm having Bible studies with someone that are gospel centered, who's just getting their eyes open to the reality of scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit and so forth. Normally I have whole 12, 15, 25 Bible studies just on the gospel. All right, now, let's go to number four, belonging before converting. I think this is something our church does a pretty good job at. I, ex- I encourage us to s- excel still more. Um, uh, almost tempted to give a couple great examples, but I think our, uh, I hear all the time from people, your church is really friendly, people greet me and so forth, but what really, really kind of blesses me is then I hear rumors of this guy had lunch with that guy, and these people had these people over for dinner, and these people went jogging, and these people went bowling. And uh, I, I just encourage us, we have to be that kind of community of people. I was talking to someone recently, said, said you know, uh, a church they had gone to, they went through some troubles, but no, and everybody knew about the troubles, but nobody asked them how they were doing. You don't want to be busybodies or pry or whatever. You can just say, I'm aware that things are tough for you, and uh, I, hope, I hope things are well or something. But, you, you know, we need to be a caring community. Because here's, here's um, one of the things that uh, is, is kind of a hopeful sign on the horizon, what they call postmodernism and uh, the millennial generation. Uh, it looks like probably in a, a trajectory you're you know you're always guessing a little bit when you're looking based on trends. But if you look out over the next twenty or thirty years, I think the mega churches are going to be in real trouble uh, with a message that adds up to the average person ties two or three percent of their income. The average person in church thirty-five to forty Sundays a month. Uh, no kind of discipleship programs. Just just classes like Sunday school. No no one-on-one. No depth of community, because I think what's happening is if you talk to what they call the millennials who are supposedly about 32 on down now, um, they long for community. And they instinctively know we're supposed to have more community than what we've experienced in life. Mostly because almost everyone is coming out of somewhat of a train wreck of a home. You know, how many people would say amen to that? Really? I, most people are coming out. Even Christian parents seldom really study enough and, and so forth to, uh, to do a great job. Sometimes Christian parents do. Uh, but, you know, a high percentage of kids growing up in church are not staying Christian when they're adults. So... Uh, I mean, there's a debate as to what percentage. The, the figures range from 40% to 70%. But a pretty high percentage of, of Christians who grow up in Christian schools and Christian homes are not staying Christian uh, when they're adults. And in fact, if you really kind of study a concept called pre-evangelism uh, that's been around for centuries, Jim Peterson of the Navigators uh, is kind of a big advocate of that principle and uh, in, his, in the 1960s and 70s. But most 
gospel, most churches really are more pre-evangelizing their people than evangelizing their people. And so, in other words, most people are coming to us ready to hear the real gospel of, of the kingdom of God. So that's um, what we need to do is be a welcoming community. Now, you notice one of our slogans has always been, we have a few slogans. One is acceptance since you are and empowerment to grow. Um, I had a, uh, some pastor friends that have churches in Dayton and Cincinnati, and uh, one of them is also a successful business guy, and they're from uh, huge churches that, and so forth, and their slogan always was, come as you are, you'll be loved. And I ran into one of the pastors at a, at a trade show, and he was, you know, buying computers for his company and stuff, and I said, what's going on with you today, these days, Jeff? And he said, well, he said, we started a, oh, just a home group. We, uh, we're not going to the big church anymore. And I said, why? He goes, well, what I got tired of is nobody ever grows up in the Lord. And I'm not saying that's that way everywhere, but, and I, you know, we struggle with that here. Uh, but um, we, we have to become uh, a place that does more than accept you as you are. We need to love you enough. You know, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain from the 50s, talks about how no person who's in love, no wife would ever allow her husband to be a total bump if she cares about him. She wouldn't allow him to skip work every day or run around with uh, floozies or, uh, you know, have uh, his emotions and his mouth out of control or whatever. If, if you love someone, you actually are going to require maturity out of them. Right? Now, there's different ways of going about that. You got to do it grace-based and not performance-based. And you need to uh, have some wisdom in how you help people move on to maturity. But you can't love somebody and just say, well, I don't really care what you do. <laughs> you know? And that's, I think, you know, um, I talk to guys all the time who, after I've been having a Bible study with them for a month or two, will tell me that they've had, you know, they went to church all their life, but they've had more time with me than they did their pastor in the, in, when they went 20 years to the same church. If you love somebody, you want to see them become mature, well-developed, complete in Christ. You want to see them take the raw gifts that God has given them and cultivate them through study and use into skills. You don't want them to to tickle around with the guitar. You want them to play the guitar well for worship. You don't want them to dabble around with the scriptures. You want them to become a pretty authoritative scholar of the whole Bible if you care about someone. You don't want them to have a, a pretty decent marriage. You want them to have a great marriage. You know, you don't want them to just go to work and have a paycheck and put their tithe in. You want them to glorify God in their work ethic at their vocation. You can't say you love people if it's only acceptance as there are, as you are, and there's no empowerment to grow. So that's, uh, then 
Um, I wanted to just read this verse that I think is a very good verse. If you're going to go out sharing the gospel at Wright State, and we're going to, you know, we are dedicated to growing there. We're eventually going to get a campus ministry condominium over there or something or a house apartment. We're, we're growing there. We're going to keep growing there. And uh, so this is a verse. If you want to be effective in ministry, you really have to think about this verse. Uh, with many such parables, he, that is Jesus, was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. Okay? Now, I freely admit uh, that it was a big adjustment. One of the, There's lots of reasons why we struggled as a church. I, you know, I didn't have enough energy to work 60 hours a week at my regular job and do a good job here and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we decided to reach out to really troubled people that took, just take longer to grow and get healthy. Lots of things like that. But a big part of it is honestly uh, the I the the to put the truth in someone's face right away that you could do in the '60s and the '70s and, and through most of the '80s, you can't do that anymore. Almost everyone is broken. Almost everyone is defensive. Almost everyone you just got to love on them a while, and maybe six months or a year or two or three years after they start coming, they'll want to start to grow. And they'll make the connection that without any kind of challenging, confrontational teaching, and you know, like Paul told Timothy, teach the word, reprove, uh, exhort, encourage with all patience and instruction. Without that, you can't grow. But that it takes quite a while these days to get that kind of platform. One of the things is, is we, you know, frankly, Jason, John, Carla especially picked up on the fact that I needed to change that, and, and, and we have, and now if you notice, you know, that's why I have 10 Bible studies going on now. It's a much more gracious and long-term approach to bringing people along. But because uh, almost everyone, they don't even know what healthy looks like. If they see healthy, they wouldn't know healthy. So... Uh, you know, the numbers of dysfunctions in families come from overly smothering mothers to, uh, to absentee fathers to uh, harsh abusive fathers to even sexually abusive situations, especially with stepfathers and things like that. I mean, people are coming out of troubled situations today. And you don't come out of that and just get whole overnight. If you did it frankly wouldn't be a process that you'd be appreciated enough in terms of your gratitude before God and your learning to lean on his strength instead of yours. That's a learning process. And if you're really going to help other people, you kind of need to become mature and take notes as you go, so to speak. That metaphor, of course. So here's some things. Uh, we spent a long time just saying, how do we get... Uh, how can we just let people come in, sit in the pews, wait one, two, three years before we ever even encourage them to uh, start kicking it in gear in terms of getting their life together? Well, um, one of the things we decided is to make everything we do gospel-centered. That's why, you know, when Jason does the communion, he gives a gospel-centered meditation on it. When uh, John, John teaches, it's, you know, it's, Things like blindness. He teaches gospel-centered things. 
Um, our, worship, our worship songs are gospel-centered. The creeds themselves are gospel-centered. Um, so, in fact, uh, was, had a talk last night. We had a dinner with a lot of uh, folks from Dayton and Cincinnati that all were in the Bowling Green Church together back in the 70s that Larry and Lisa uh, got together. They got everybody together last night. And, uh, uh, you know, Father Wayne McNamara of Christ the King, uh, Reformed Episcopalian Church, was telling me, um, he's, he said that the, the thing that I always talk about, about the creeds, that I just sort of guessed that this would be true. He's actually read articles with statistics that it's true, and it's simply as this. When people go up, grow up in a liturgical church that recites a creed, in, they don't necessarily become a Christian. But Jesus said, um, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. What happens to someone who's in a, a creedal-based church that recites it all the time, when God starts knocking on their door, when they start having spiritual experiences, when they bottom out or they get pulled into the love of God or whatever, when they start thinking about spiritual things, a, not, a person that has no creeds in their background will end up in whatever group of spiritual people get to them first, including the cults. That's how the cults grow. But a person that's grown up, grown up reciting the apostles and Nicene Creed will always end up in an Orthodox church. And they, they have all kinds of studies to verify that. And that's, you know, something we've said around here a lot. The creeds won't lead you to Christ, but they'll show you where the boundaries are when God starts bringing you to Christ. And you'll end up at least in some orthodox expression of, of the church. That's, and if you study it in church history, you know, the first creeds were, are actually in the New Testament. First, first Corinthians 15, 2 through 4. Uh, Paul has one in one of the Timothy epistles etc. These were recited in the early church, and over time they grew as they addressed more attacks on the church, like Gnosticism and Arianism and Docetism and Manichaeanism, all the, all the different cults that raised up to try to, to try to undermine the church from within. They, they redefined the creeds more and more and more to keep that cult out. That's how the Nicene Creed came to be in the form that it is today. And what, uh, what happened was by the 5th century, all, almost all the creeds, all, I'm sorry, almost all the cults were smashed. Now, early in the 4th century, it looked like the church was going to be smashed. That's why the saying came up, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. He seemed at times to be the alone uh, elder Episcopos bishop of uh, Hippo that was holding out for an orthodox view of the Trinity and the orthodox doctrines uh, of the Bible uh, against a, uh, a heresy named Arianism. But um, by the 5th century, the cults were smashed. And you go all the way through church history and you see one or two cults pop up until the mid-1800s. And in the, from the 1830 to 1890, more and more uh, churches split off that became e known as evangelical or fundamentalist churches, who their idea at first, you wouldn't know this uh, today from a lot of evangelical churches, but they were very revivalistic, a lot of, uh, a lot of exciting worship and praise and people clapping and dancing and so forth. 
and uh, very altar call oriented and so forth. But they, but they basically said, in the name of being sensitive to the spirit, we don't want a structured liturgy. So the idea that we're going to say communion, we're, we're going we're to just take communion whenever the, we, the spirit, we feel like it. We're, gonna not, we're not going to have creeds or scripture readings. And that is exactly when all the modern pseudo-Christian cults started. Christian science, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, and so forth. And if you study your church history, which we'll, we'll be running a class on church history next year, um, what, what you'll find is that when you study your church history, all the same ideas of the cults of the first three and four centuries are the same ones of the modern cults with different labels, but the same concepts. Well, let's move on to, uh, so here's, you know, the reason we've done all this gospel-centered stuff in our church, church is if you could look at it this way, in the natural, a baby is conceived, if all goes well, he or she is implanted in his or her mother's womb, they develop in an amniotic sac, which is 98.5% water, and they are born nine months later. Now, thanks to modern science, if a baby is born even as early as four and a half or five months, they can usually, through incubators and much care, save the baby. But of course, every doctor is working towards working with that couple to have her take her prenatal vitamins and give up her dance aerobic class in the seventh month, <laughs> so she's not jumping so much that I'm just, <coughs> excuse me, um, got a bad cold. <coughs> <coughs> but man so anyway the point is you want to go as close to full term as you can right and really if we would look at evangelism a little bit more this way I remember Pastor Brown who I'm good friends with called me into his office one time and he'd been asked to speak in front of the National Assembly of God's annual conference on evangelism and he said Greg you know, we're looked at as a pretty evangelistic church here, but the truth is only around 3 to 5% of the people who receive Christ at altar calls do we ever see keep track of them growing up in the Lord. What What's missing? And I said, conviction. Of course, there's lots of other things missing, but the conviction element is, is huge. Uh, we tend to think we have this little teeny problem and we just need a little therapy. God has to take us to where we, we really see we have this horrendously gigantic problem called sin. And we have no ability, to not one little ounce of ability to save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves from our sin nature. We can't rescue ourselves from the world system. And we can't rescue ourselves from the devil or his demons. We need to be saved by Christ. All right, so here's some things that uh, go along with this phrase, as they were able to hear it. As trust develops and defensiveness drops. I would encourage any of you who are, who are trying to help people come to Christ and, and so forth to just be supportive and be a friend and stay with them and try to get them to a place where they're willing to be honest with either you or somebody qualified to bring them forward. 
Until they get fully honest, they're never going to really, you know, they, they can even seem to be making progress. But if there's little lies they're hiding, little things they're doing that they don't want you to know, because you know what that, what that, the thing they're not telling you is always based in? What the Bible calls the boastful pride of life. Well, I didn't want you to think that I was a chainsaw murderer. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, if you are, you need to come clean about it. <laughs> Please go to another church and do that. But, uh, no, just kidding. But, uh, you know, the, everyone is always trying to save face versus trying to find God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He, whenever you see the word truth, substitute reality. You cannot find God when you have areas of sin and darkness that you're keeping in unreality. So, you know, help people to be converted into a disciple, being discipled, as trust develops and their defensiveness drops. When people start getting real, that's when they're really born in Christ in the real, in the biblical sense. You know, uh, I, if any of you grew up Catholic, I was a Catholic, and they had, we have a thing called penance, and I believe it's based on John 20 and James 5. I think Protestants should be doing it, where you confess your sins to uh, someone older in the Lord and have them pray with you and so forth. But um, the whole trick to that is uh, learning, learning to be honest. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. Do you want God more than you want your pride? So if, hopefully everyone's read the, uh, the book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. But that wanting to look good in front of our fellow brothers and sisters is, is like that little lizard in the great divorce that keeps wanting to hide and so forth. But unless, until you're ready, ready to crush him, you can't have God. Galatians 1.10 said, I cannot or could not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ if I still was trying to please men. If I, if I really care about what people think of me, you, I can't be a bondservant of Christ. So that's important. Uh, secondly, as gospel awareness develops, especially our sin. Now, I'm not big on individual stuff and so forth, but in terms of sin, that has to become an individual personalized issue. Because here's the problem. All of you have the same kind of anointing I have, which is I can see the sins in other people so much better in me <laughs> than I can see in me. Can't you? Right? Everyone's, Proverbs, everyone's way is right in their own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. We all can see everyone else's specks in their eyes, even somehow when we're looking around these big logs. Oh, yeah, I think I see a speck over in that guy's eye. <laughs> you know? You know? We play pitchfork with the messages. You know, someone's, John's sharing the word. That blindness message was awesome, and the lifted up message was awesome. And, and it's like, boy, I sure hope Brother uh, Kent is listening to that. And Kent's like, I sure hope Fawn's listening to that. Fawn's like, hope Matt Fortner's listening to that. 
You know, we play pitchfork. That's what I call playing pitchfork with the word of God. You need to make sure it's cutting you. And that's really all you need to be concerned about. <laughs> make sure the word of God is cutting you. So uh, gospel awareness has to, has to include a deepening understanding of sin, Satan, the world system, and our total inability to do anything about it outside the grace of God. As long as you're holding on to one little teeny ounce of self-righteousness, you're in trouble. Give it up. I'm a vagabond, and, and he still loved me. You know what? If you struggle with insecurity things, go to... to do exactly see in the spiritual everything is opposite of what it seems like in the natural so when most insecure people get really defensive and they're trying to share trying to hold on to i don't want you to know how bad i am so i didn't tell you about this one or that one and so forth it's the spiritual is the opposite because as long as i'm holding on to some degree of self-righteousness i can't have christ righteousness and when I see that I'm totally a vagabond, I'm totally improperly motivated, my sin problem is horrendous, it's out of control, uh, literally, and, uh, and so forth, then I can meet my Savior and my Lord. So... Um, one of the... Things under point number three is I said, beware when we are trying harder than they are. Some, one of the things that uh, several of us have learned the hard way is when you're working with people, if you want them to grow more than they want to grow, which is going to be always the case at, the, at first, because you can see Christ more clearly, and you just hope and hope and hope for them to, to deal with God rightly and break through and grow in the Lord. But you can't invest so much that you kill yourself or whatever, but you can't, you can't really care about it more than them. What you really got to do is start praying to God and working with God by the Holy Spirit to help them see it clearly enough that they want to pursue God. Because when you're pursuing it more than them, it's just a recipe for wearing yourself out and, and investing all your resources beyond what you really have and on and on and on. There is unlimited human brokenness out there right now. We have to be wise in how we reach out to people. They say codependency is when you're willing to uh, be out in the lake saving souls in such a way that you sink your own boat. So don't let, you know, we, you have to watch out. You know, I'm, I'm fine that our church has grown slow and steady because I still have a great relationship with my wife and I still have a great relationship with my two sons and daughters that are here. And, you know, and you understand what I'm saying? You know what? Inch by inch is not bad. Uh, lastly, as gospel-centered worship, scriptures, readings, messages, creeds, and communion do the work. So, you know, the, the reason we sometimes wait to two or three or four months until people... Uh, yeah, we're befriending them, we're building a relationship, but we're, we're basically hoping that they will want all of God. Most people haven't seen in, any radical expression of the body of Christ. Uh, even in just in terms of things like the level of scripture study or 
level of character or commitment. Most people haven't seen that. So this is one of my favorite verses, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, for, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Isn't that a great verse? You know, sometimes, uh, in fact, uh, we, were, we had that dinner last night, and uh, one of the guys that was there was a guy named Jim Barth. And Jim Barth taught me that back in uh, the campus ministry days. He said, Greg, sometimes it takes more faith to share a word with someone and, uh, and walk away and let God work on that word for a while. Sometimes there are situations where you need to trust God to build their faith, and it takes a, a there's, there's instantaneous kinds of faith that you need for praying for the baptism in the Spirit, for casting out demons, uh, healings. There's long-term kinds of faith that you need for fruitfulness. Fruit doesn't, by the, the nature of fruit is that first a seed has to germinate, then a, 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 some kind of plant or tree has to grow, depending on the nature of the fruit. You know, strawberries are just bushes or whatever those things are, peach trees, whatever. The fruit takes a while. Whereas things like deliverance, baptism in the Spirit, they're part of giving, the guy, giving someone a package that they need for fruitfulness. Well, so that, you know, what we kind of focused on today just to wrap up is that uh, the Scripture that is with many other parables, Jesus was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. That is a very important thing for us to think on. And, um, and then all those as's I put under there, look for those. As you're, trying to, as you're trying to share the gospel, disciple people, bring them along, look for those four categories of as they were this, as the gospel was doing its work, and so forth. Um, so, um, and here's how that works, and then I'll quit with this. There, Jesus was walking um, in northern Galilee, and the Disciples were pressing in all around him and so forth. And there was a woman who had an issue of blood, and she had spent all she had on doctors, but she hadn't got better. Sounds, I think that can happen in our day. Um, then, uh, you know, she, God gave her faith. Anyone who, you know, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is all, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Faith is always something that God gives and we receive. So somehow, uh, this woman through Jesus preaching or what, we don't know how, came to believe in who Jesus was. So she said inside herself, because this is, faith always talks, you know, like David said, bless the Lord, all my soul. You talk to yourself. She said inside herself, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. Well, when she did, Jesus stops everyone and says, who touched me? And Peter, I always love Peter, always because uh, I've frankly had a tender tendency to answer matters before I hear him. Also, in Proverbs, it says, whoever answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and shame to him. So Peter doesn't really know what's going on, but he, Jesus says, who touched me? And Peter 
helps Jesus out as always or rebukes Jesus, confronts, said, Jesus, there, you know, there are all these people are pressing in on you and hitting you and bumping you. What are you talking about? Who touched me? And uh, Jesus said, thanks, Peter. I never really kind of know what to do or how to proceed unless you really guide me. <laughs> Just my own sarcasm. But uh, that's kind of how we are sometimes in our prayer lives with God, I think. But uh, uh no, Jesus said, no, but I was aware that power went out for me. Somebody touched me with faith. So here, this is very important if you're going to be effective leading a kid's Bible study, leading an individual Bible study, leading people to Christ, uh, helping them come into the first five steps of the kingdom and so forth. You have to sense the Holy Spirit working. You are a co-laborer with the Holy Spirit. You'll sense the Holy Spirit saying, ease off over here. You'll sense the Holy Spirit saying, put the pedal to the metal. <laughs> you know, drive a truck through this opening that I just made. Uh, and so forth. You really have to be a partner with him. John 15, 26, when the, the helper, the spirit of truth comes, he shall bear witness of me, and you shall also bear witness of me. We can witness to what God's done in our lives. We can witness to all we know about the scriptures. But if the Holy Spirit isn't doing the work, it's worthless. It's nothing. It's death. And you can actually sense, it's not that hard to start developing a sense of the anointing. Part of why you, you start with worshiping and sensing the presence of God in worship. You go to the baptism in the Spirit and, and getting a much greater sense. You learn how to walk clean and holy and right before God all the time so you can have that sense of his joy and power and anointing flowing. And you learn when God is, is, when it's pouring out of you. Because when it's pouring out of you, someone is experiencing the verse we read earlier, that I thank God that when you receive the word of God for, from us, you received it for what it really is, the word of God and not the word of men. When that's happening in your living room or across your dining room table, then something is really going on. And that person is being birthed into the kingdom of God. Amen.